From Studio Sweden comes The Regent, a premium on-ear Bluetooth pair of headphones. I listen to a ton of music and podcasts, and I think these headphones are rad. I'm a bit fussy about technology, and there are three things that I look for in a pair of headphones. Rich sound, which includes great bass, that's really important to me. Bluetooth that quickly connects, and solid battery life and comfort. Not only do the headphones have rich bass, the sound is super clear and it's so good. Connecting to Bluetooth is super easy and fast. They have over 24 hours of active battery life and 20 days of standby, which is great because I've had some wireless headphones that don't hold their charge, and these are awesome and reliable. The Regents are comfy and stylish. Uh, I wear glasses during my waking hours, and these headphones feel great with a pair of glasses on. My ears don't hurt like they do with typical over-the-ear headphones because they're designed really well, and you can change out the caps to create a personalized, modern look. Scandinavian design rules. As a bonus, there's a secret feature that's really rad about these headphones, and that is that they have an auxiliary port with the cable included, and that makes it super flexible in, in case you don't have Bluetooth on your laptop and you just want to stay connected. Studio Sweden has worldwide shipping, so please visit their website at studiosweden.com and use coupon code BASED, that's B-A-S-E-D, for 15% off any purchase. Go check them out. Before he directed the holiday classic, A Christmas Story, Bob Clark helmed a film that was quite a bit darker, Black Christmas, an early entry to the holiday horror and slasher genres. Rumors have persisted that Black Christmas is based on a series of mysterious Christmas-adjacent murders. But was it? This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And welcome to episode 20, our Christmas holiday episode. Uh, But before we get to our discussion of our movie this week, Black Christmas, we have a couple people to thank. We do, yeah. Uh, We have some new reviews from AngelXBeth94, and this is Elson, so thank you for taking the time to write some nice things about the show. We also have an announcement that we did not have a teaser Tuesday this week uh, for this episode because we actually voted for it in our Facebook discussion group, Cult of Based on a True Crime. Yeah, so thank you so much to everyone who voted. We were really excited to do this one because we were planning on watching this movie anyway. It's part of our Christmas rotation. As I mentioned in the introduction, there is this persistent rumor that Black Christmas is based on a true story, but like many before me, I have failed to find the actual string of Christmas time murders that supposedly took place in the Montreal region of Quebec, which is what what the rumor is. The closest I found, which was actually kind of an interesting rabbit hole to go down, was there is an unknown serial killer who murdered women in the area called the Bootlace Killer. And they killed four people by strangling them with thin ligatures, which were usually their own shoelaces. Doesn't that sound like something out of a horror movie? That does. Yeah, that's scary. Yes. So a fascinating case, but these murders began in 1977 and this movie came out in 1974. So perhaps time travel was involved. (laughs) Yes. But what the movie actually seems to be based on is 
an urban legend, actually. This is the urban legend of the babysitter and the killer upstairs. And this legend started around the 1960s. The legend itself is actually based on a true story from 1950 that I'm not going to talk about because it's going to be a future episode of ours. Uh, So, David, are you familiar with this urban legend? No, actually, I'm not not familiar with it at all. Other than the um, was the was Halloween possibly originally titled the babysitter murderers or killer? I am unaware of that, although it obviously would make sense with that movie. I also have not heard of this urban legend specifically. The one I'm more familiar with, which is actually one that came to mind when I saw the title for some reason. Mine's the escaped killer. And the licked hand. Do you know that urban legend? Ooh, no. Oh. I don't. Tell me about <laughs> so it. So that's the one when I was reading about this legend, I kind of thought maybe they were the same story, but they're not. So that's the story where a girl is home alone and hears on the news that there's an escaped killer and she goes to bed at night and she hears like dripping in the bathroom and she's scared. So to reassure herself, she puts her hand over the edge of the bed and feels her dog licking the hand. So she goes back to sleep, sleeps the night, goes into the bathroom the next morning and the dog is unfortunately dead. And like the dripping is the dog's blood and then written sometimes on the mirror, sometimes on the floor in blood is uh, humans can lick too. Oh, you don't know that one? My mouth just dropped open for a minute there. <laughs> yes. So that's that's my childhood urban legend. But this is a different one. This is the babysitter and the killer upstairs. So this legend goes that a babysitter is watching some children. She puts the children to bed upstairs and goes downstairs to watch TV. She gets a phone call from someone she doesn't know telling her to go check on the children. And she ignores it because she figures, you know, she put the kids to sleep. They're just upstairs. And he calls again and he keeps calling back. So eventually she calls the police and they tell her that they're going to trace the call. So he calls again and this time the police trace it. The police immediately call the babysitter back and tell her to get out of the house now. So she goes outside and meets the police and they tell her that the calls are actually coming from upstairs in the house. And the man, it turns out, had called her after killing the children. Oh, no. Yep. So this actually got me thinking about the movie Adventures in Babysitting, where it seems like maybe they combined this story with the Hookman, right? Because this kind of scary story she's telling in the car is the babysitter goes upstairs to check on the children and they're all dead and their faces are all scratched up. And then she says their faces are like SpaghettiOs with meat. <laughs> That's the best. Yes, I love that movie. Yeah, great movie. Yeah. So in the absence of a true serial killing incident that you know Black Christmas is based off of, I decided to look into two cases that I think have some of the more interesting elements of this movie in them. And these are cases that actually happened prior to Black Christmas coming out. So who knows? Maybe they were a little bit of an influence on the movie. One case is that of Theodore Edward Coney's, a.k.a. the Denver Spider-Man. And that's the story that David will be telling. And I'm going to talk about infamous mass murderer Richard Speck. And for that case, there is quite a bit of murder and sexual assault just as a warning. But first, we'll we'll do the more lighthearted case. So only one murder in this one. Why don't we get into it?
Theodore Edward Conies was born in Petersburg, Illinois, on November 10th of 1882. He was a sickly child and never completed high school because doctors told him they didn't expect him to live to see his 18th birthday. He did end up living quite a bit longer, and although he worked on occasion, he was homeless for most of his adult life. In September of 1941, when he was 59 years old, he went to the house of an old friend, 73-year-old Philip Peters, to ask for assistance. Peters was not home. He was actually in the hospital visiting with his wife, who had recently broken her hip. However, he had left his home unlocked, and Coney's let himself in. While inside the house, Coney's found a small trapdoor in the ceiling of a closet, which led to a tiny attic room. Due to his being sickly, Coney's was extremely thin and could fit through the door, which was about three times the size of a cigar box lid. He decided to move into the small room rather than live on the streets during that winter. He managed to stay there undetected for about five weeks, only slipping downstairs when Peters left the house in order to steal some food and use the bathroom. Unfortunately, on October the 17th, Coney's went downstairs and started cooking himself some food after he thought Peters had left, but Peters was only in the other room taking a nap. He was startled by Coney's and struck him with his cane. Coney's then attacked Peters and bludgeoned him to death before returning to the attic. Peters' body was found later that day by a neighbor who had been expecting him for dinner. When police arrived, they found all of the doors and windows locked and no signs of forced entry. They did notice the door in the attic in the closet, but they believed that it was too small for a person to fit through. The house remained empty for several weeks, although neighbors would claim to see movement sometimes behind the curtains, which they attributed to the ghost of Philip Peters, obviously. Eventually, his wife Helen was released from the hospital and moved back home. One night, she fell when something startled her and refractured her hip. Rather than go back to the hospital, she hired a live-in nurse. However, the rumors of the house being haunted, along with mysterious sounds of someone wandering the house at night, were too much for the nurse, and after seeing some figure on the back stairs, which chattered its teeth at her, she quit. A neighbor of Peter's stepped up and offered to help out Mrs. Peter's, including staying over some nights. One of those nights, after hearing noises from the kitchen, the neighbor rushed to the room in time to spot a bedraggled, wraith-like figure standing at the foot of the stairs. That was the final straw for Mrs. Peters, and she moved to western Colorado to live with her son. Man, I don't think I could have even moved back into that house in the first place. Oh, no way. Yeah. It's terrifying. It is pretty scary. Well, the house remained unoccupied, Chelsea, for several more months, although passersby would claim to sometimes see lights or hear strange sounds coming from the house. Despite more than nine months passing since the murder, police also kept the house under somewhat regular surveillance, perhaps because of the persistent rumors of the house being haunted. Finally, on July the 30th of 1942, they saw Coney's move a curtain in the house, showing his face. Police raided the house and caught Coney in the process of climbing through the trap door in the closet. One police officer grabbed his feet and was able to pull him down from the opening, and he promptly passed out. Plied with food at the police station, Coney's confessed to everything, even telling police that, as he got more bold, he would sometimes sneak downstairs while Philip Peters was home and shadow him from room to room. Coney's was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison at the Colorado State Penitentiary. He died on May 16th of 1967 in the prison hospital. He was 84 years old. That's probably one of my favorite, I would say it's a, one of my favorite strange crime stories to use the, the category on my collection of true crime trading cards. It is bizarre and terrifying. Not the least reason why is that we have a very similar kind of uh, opening to our attic space that has a little window that we we don't know what's behind the window. Hopefully not a dead person with a plastic bag over their head. Hopefully slowly not. Slowly rocking in a rocking chair. Or a mummified uh, uh, Norma Bates. Oh my gosh. 
But yeah, so I have a few discussion points. My first one is just a question to shout into the air. But how is there not a movie about this crime? This actually came up in our Facebook discussion group. Um, One question was, you know, what crime do you think would make an awesome movie that's not a movie yet that we were talking about? And mine was this case because it feels like a horror movie. It actually feels like kind of like Black Christmas, that idea of, you know, someone living in your attic, spoiler alert, and you just kind of going about your daily life and not realizing that person is right there watching you. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah. And I feel like it wouldn't even need to be played like an apparition. You could just straight out let the audience know that this is a person and played out like a true crime movie, but then with some spooky stuff. Oh, Housebound is another movie that kind of has that, that similar element. I love that's really funny. Yeah, Housebound's like, great. Check that out. Art if you comedy. Not. Yeah, I think I saw it on Netflix or it's it, it, it was on Netflix recently. Yeah. yeah. Um. So there's not a movie based on this case, but there are two TV show episodes. One is uh, it's an episode of CSI called Stalker. Have you seen this one? No, I haven't. All right. It's one of those ones that played pretty frequently. It's like this one and the furry one. <laughs> Oh, I feel like that if one you I've caught an like episode of times. CSI on TV randomly, it was one of those two. And it's, yeah, it's a pretty scary one, but it's, I think the killer was like a cable worker who like installed cable at the house of one of the members of the CSI team and then became obsessed with him and like killed his ex-girlfriend and then was living in his attic. It's terrifying. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, wow. Yikes. Um, the other one is actually an episode of The Simpsons that I can't remember. It's from season 15. I don't even know if I was still watching at that point, but it's called The Ziff Who Came to Dinner. So if, if you know of that one, David or our listeners, apparently it is somewhat influenced by this story <laughs> uh yeah i don't think i saw that one but uh i guess uh john lovitz does the voice so it could be funny yeah all right well moving on to our more dismal true crime story i'm going to give you guys a brief overview of richard speck Richard Benjamin Speck was born on December 6th of 1941 in Kirkwood, Illinois. He was born to a large religious family, but after his father died when Speck was six, his mother remarried and moved with Speck and his younger sister to East Dallas, Texas. His stepfather was an alcoholic who abused Speck and his siblings, and Speck quickly fell into a pattern of juvenile delinquency and alcohol abuse. In January of 1962, when Speck was 20, he married 15-year-old Shirley Malone, and in July of that year, they had a daughter. Speck landed in jail for check fraud in 1963 and for aggravated assault in 1965 after he attacked a woman in a parking lot with a 17-inch carving knife. Due to an error, he was released from prison after just six months. During this period, Speck had the words born to raise hell tattooed on his arm. Oh, and that tattoo is going to come back, David. So by the time Speck was released from prison, he and his wife were separated and she filed for divorce in January of 1966. That same month, Speck stabbed a man in a bar fight for which he paid a $10 fine and served three days in prison. Three days in prison? (laughs) Three days in prison. Yep. In March of that year... Speck stole 70 cartons of cigarettes from a grocery store. Police traced the robbery to him and issued a warrant for his arrest. Rather than return to jail, he left town and headed to Chicago. He stayed with his sister for a few days before returning to his boyhood home of Monmouth, Illinois. Shortly after he arrived in town, on April 2nd of 1966, 65-year-old Virgil Harris was raped and robbed by a man fitting Speck's description. One week later, on April 9th, 32-year-old Mary Kay Pierce disappeared after leaving work at Frank's place. 
a tavern which Speck frequented. She was reported missing on April 13th, and her body was found beaten to death in an empty hog house behind the tavern later that day. Speck was suspected of both attacks and was told not to leave town, which, of course, he immediately did. And after he left, police found items belonging to Harris in his room. So Speck went back to his sister's home in Chicago, and his brother-in-law helped Speck to find work as a U.S. merchant marine. He joined the crew on the Clarence B. Randall, but was stricken with appendicitis and had to be evacuated and undergo an emergency appendectomy on May 3rd. So he rejoined the crew on May 20th, but a few weeks later, on June 14th, he got into a drunken fight with another crew member and was put ashore. Still, Speck's brother-in-law helped him file his paperwork to become a seaman on June 30th at the National Maritime Union Hiring Hall. When they returned together to pick up his seaman's card and register for placement on a ship on July 8th, Speck missed out on being placed in favor of a more senior person. Three days later, on July 11th, Speck's sister and her family were through having Speck stay with them. They had him pack up his bags and they dropped him off at the NMU hiring hall. He spent the next two days trying and failing to get placement on a ship, at one point even being told that he had received an assignment on an oil tanker, only to arrive at the dock to find that the spot had already been taken. By the second night, he had run out of money, and he ended up sleeping nearby the hiring hall in an unfinished house. At 9 a.m. on July 13th, his sister drove to the NMU hiring hall, and she spoke with Speck for about 30 minutes and gave him $25. By 10.30, Speck was already sick of waiting for placement, so instead he walked a mile and a half to the Shipyard Inn, which is a rooming house, and he spent the rest of the day drinking at different taverns. Later that same day, he attacked 53-year-old Ella May Hooper. He took her to his room at the Shipyard Inn at knife point, raped her, and stole her 22 caliber pistol. He drank at the bar in the inn until 10.20 p.m., and then he dressed all in black, and he left. He walked a mile and a half back towards the NMU hiring hall, but he wasn't actually going there. He was heading for a townhouse at 2319 East 100th Street, which was just 150 feet from the entrance to the hiring hall. And this townhouse served as a communal home for young student nurses from the South Chicago Community Hospital. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. Can't be good. No. The door was answered by 23-year-old Corazon Amareo. She opened the door when he knocked and he forced his way inside at gunpoint. He rounded up all of the women and ordered them to empty their purses and he tied them all up in one room. Over the course of the next several hours, he led each woman one by one from the room and then he would either stab or strangle the woman to death before going back to the room for the next woman. The last victim, Gloria Davy, he raped and then strangled to death. In total, Speck murdered eight women that night. Gloria Davy, Patricia Matsitek, Nina Jo Schmall, Pamela Wilkening, Suzanne Ferris, Marianne Jordan, Merlita Gargulo, and Valentina Pacian. However, Speck failed to notice Corazon Amareo, the woman who had actually answered the door for him. She managed to hide under a bed. She stayed hidden until almost 6 a.m., hours after Speck had left with the money that he stole. And then she climbed out on a window ledge and screamed until a neighbor heard and called the police. Police interviewed her, and she was able to give a very accurate description of Speck, including his distinctive Born to Raise Hell tattoo. The composite sketch of Speck looked enough like him that a drifter who was staying at the Star Hotel called police on July 16th to report that he'd been drinking with Speck at the hotel on the previous evening. Police actually did not respond to this call, but the pressure was enough that Speck attempted suicide in the hotel that night. 
And then he changed his mind at the last minute and summoned help. He was taken to the Cook County Hospital where his tattoo was recognized by hospital staff and they immediately summoned police. Oh, that tattoo. Yeah. So Speck went to trial on April 3rd of 1967. He claimed that he had no memory of the murders due to being extremely drunk and on drugs. Although he actually did confess to the crime while he was at the hospital, but that confession was not admissible in court because he was sedated. Uh, Amareo was the star witness and she gave flawless testimony, which identified Speck unequivocally. The trial lasted only 12 days and the jury found Speck guilty of all eight murders after less than an hour of deliberations. Speck was initially sentenced to death, but in 1972, this was commuted to 50 to 100 years in prison when the U.S. Supreme Court temporarily abolished capital punishment. Speck died of a heart attack on December 5th of 1991 after 19 years in prison. He was just 49 years old. 49. That's so young for a heart attack. R.I.P. Yep. So as a discussion point, I feel like myself as someone who is into true crime, I knew of Richard Speck before doing this research. And I know that David knows Richard Speck at the very least from Mindhunter, which we just watched together. Yes. So he was very, very creepy in that show. Obviously a real creeper IRL as well. But he truly did keep a pair of sparrows that had flown into his cell. And as a result, he was given the nickname Birdman. Really? Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Also, so Mindhunter is based on, I don't know if you want to call them the adventures of John Douglas, a pioneer in the field of behavioral sciences. Sure, let's call it that. Sure. Um, I think that's the name of the book right now. The book is called Mindhunter, obviously. But he actually did interview Richard Speck. So for those of you who have seen Mindhunter, I wanted to have David be our John Douglas and read this excerpt from an interview. Uh, it was the Chicago area newspaper did with with John Douglas. So I'll be the interviewer and you be John Douglas. All right. Excellent. Is the interview with the killer more important than understanding the crime scene, John Douglas? Before I do the interview, I have to know the scene. I have to look at the crime scene, the crime scene photographs. You have to look at the preliminary police reports, autopsy photographs, read the autopsy protocol. I have to do an analysis of the victim called victimology where you try to ask the question, why was the victim the victim of this particular crime? Then, armed with all that information, I'll go in there. Then they become very candid with you about the crimes. Take Richard Speck, your Chicago guy. I sat there and laughed with him about his crimes. What I learned from my interview was to allow him to take control of the interview. I allowed him to sit above me, looking down at me, really angry. When I kind of ignored him and I talked with his counselor as if he wasn't there, you know the thing about it, I don't understand how this Speck could have killed all these women, how he could have had sex with them. I didn't use the word sex. I use the street term, <laughs> what he did to these women. So Speck starts laughing. You're about as sick as I am. Then he started laughing and opening up and talking about himself, about cases, the crimes. I thought that was interesting because uh, the interview is actually fairly similar in Mindhunter. And actually, the character gets in quite a bit of trouble for using, uh, what do they call it? Using the street term for sex, we'll say. Yeah, um, no, that's a that's a really good pot, plot point of the of the series. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, you know, knowing that it, it really is, you know, kind of true to the real story. And it's also interesting. I think Richard Speck only gave one interview with a newspaper ever. He was very closed off from the media. His uh his performance in Mindhunter was really interesting how he portrayed this like really 
I mean, he seemed like hyper masculine, but super defensive. And I thought that that portrayal um, of retrospect was really, really powerful. Yeah, and I, I think that's pretty true to how he himself looked back on his own crimes because the interview that they have had with him, you know, although he didn't give many interviews to the police, he did talk about how he felt like no emotions. After the, he actually talked about feeling remorse after the fact, but then looking back on the crimes and just having no emotional attachment to what happened at all. So so it's, it's he's definitely an interesting character, sort of. I think the difference between the psychology of a mass murderer versus a serial killer. So he's considered a mass murderer. And although you know there were those attacks and murders that aren't definitely connected with him, you know, he's... I think technically not a serial killer because it was kind of like one fell swoop, but but still a terrible person. Yes. On that cheerful note, why don't we start talking about our cheerful Christmas movie? Yeah, uh, sit tight. We will be right back. Before we get into the movie discussion, I want to take a minute to tell you what I love about Studio Sweden headphones. I've been using the Regent model, which is their premier on-ear model, and it's honestly the first time I've noticed a real improvement in sound quality when switching between headphones. For both podcasts and music, the sound is incredibly rich and clear. They're also super comfortable, even over glasses, which is nice when I have to spend six hours straight wearing them to edit the podcast. Probably my favorite feature, though, is the auxiliary cable. I've been using Bluetooth headphones since Apple got rid of their headphone jack on my phone, RIP, but neither my personal laptop nor my work laptop can use Bluetooth. It's so nice now only needing to have one pair of headphones. Right now, we're partnering with Studio Sweden to offer, based on a true crime listeners, 15% off their purchase by using our discount code BASED. In addition to the on-ear Regent model, they have a variety of earbuds, both Bluetooth and corded, all with really sleek, modern designs. They also ship worldwide totally free. And don't forget to use our discount code BASED for 15% off. You can find a link to their online store in our show notes or go to studiosweden.com. Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, star bright, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs, candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. And we're back. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, a creature was stirring. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, but it was hardly St. Nicholas soon to be there. In the college town of Bedford, Several unsuspecting people are about to receive season's greetings of terror. Black Christmas is a stark and stylish exercise in suspense that turns everyone's favorite time of year inside out. Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder star as two among an ill-fated handful of sorority sisters celebrating the season and semester's end when an obscene phone call interrupts their festivities. The caller rings off with the death threat, which proves all too real. 
Is the killer a brilliant music student who has gotten one of the women pregnant? No one is sure. And no one can stop the deadly calls preceding the attacks. Predating Halloween and Friday the 13th by several years, Black Christmas effectively laid the groundwork for the murder thrillers that would follow through its clever interplay of tension, shocks, and humor. Producer-director Bob Clark earned his reputation as a hitmaker for the first two Porky's films, but here he works in a vein closer to his highly applauded Sherlock Holmes caper, Murder by Decree, exploring the underside of the holiday he so affectionately and somewhat sardonically celebrated in a jovial A Christmas Story. So have yourself a scary little Black Christmas. It's not at all like the ones you used to know. That's that's excellent. So that's from one of the early VHS copies from the back, the the promo material. So whoever wrote that from the studio or distribution company, great job. That's a good little turn on the night before Christmas. I just like season's greetings of terror. I know what we're putting in our uh, Christmas card. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's the best. <laughs> So as mentioned, um, just kind of talking up the film, Black Christmas was directed by Bob Clark. And if his name sounds familiar, it is possibly from what is considered a holiday classic, which we mentioned at the start of the episode, A Christmas Story, which could not be further from Black Christmas. You'll shoot your eye out, David. (laughs) Yep, exactly. You got to watch out for those uh, Red Ryder BB guns. Bob Clark has actually directed quite a few genre films, starting with, well, it's Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things in 1972. That was a zombie movie. Also, another zombie film, 1972's Death Dream. And those are two of my dad's favorite movies. He's talked about them a lot. Yeah, and there's a nice uh, Blu-ray that just came out, I believe, of Death Dream. So we'll have to check that out. And then he did Black Christmas in 74. And also, as I mentioned, the Murder by Decree film. I have not seen that one. It sounds really interesting. Sherlock Holmes caper. So maybe we should watch that sometime. Yes, I do love Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And then he did uh, the first two Porky's films, which are considered 80s comedy classics. And then, as I said uh, earlier, A Christmas Story. The film was written by A. Roy Moore, who doesn't have a huge list of credits. So this is a big one. A. Roy Moore. I'm glad it's not the Roy Moore. Yeah, exactly. I know. As, Considering. Yep. Ooh, a little awkward. Just, just A. Roy Moore. Yeah, just A. Just a is the initial of his first name. That's yep. That's the joke Alan. for people that aren't actually looking at it written in front of them. <laughs> yeah. It's just any old Roy Moore. I really like the cast. I thought the cast is great. So the lead is the character of Jess, uh, Jessica Bradford. She's played by Olivia Hussey. And in looking through her credits, one of the things that I didn't realize was that she is in the It miniseries, and she plays Bill's wife, Audra Denborough. I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, that's awesome, yeah. Um, the one thing I did remember her from, because we watched this, I think it was maybe in high school, was the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet. We watched that in my high school, too, my high school English class. I think yeah. my freshman year English class. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure a lot of uh, you listeners out there probably had a similar experience of watching yes. it. One of the only Romeo and Juliet adaptations I've seen where she truly looks like she's the character's age, which is like 12 or 13, I think. Yeah. And there's really like, young. a. I, I mean, I remember there's like an it was an uncut like nudie scene. I think ours was edited. Oh, yeah. No, they just played it for us, I guess. I don't know how, but uh, Psycho came up earlier in our discussion. She plays Norma Bates in Psycho for the beginning. Uh, she's also in The Ice Cream Man with Clint Howard. And um, I noticed that she has done quite a few voiceovers in some Star Wars video games and some other action-oriented games as well. So that's kind of cool. Uh, we have Peter. <clears throat> we'll talk about Peter in a little bit. Yes. He's played by Kira Dulala. 
Barbie. Barbie Cord is played by the great Margot Kidder. And if her name sounds familiar, she's Lois Lane in the first four Superman films. Love her. She's she's really oh, yeah, I bet you do. Yeah, she's awesome. Um well she's in those Superman movies and she for me is the definitive Lois Lane. And for I'm, me, it's Terry Hatcher. Yeah. You know, that's she's a good one too. But yeah, Margot Margot Kidder is a little bit better. This is you. Yes, it's me. She's in Brian De Palma's Sisters. And most importantly, related to our show, she plays Kathy Lutz in 1979's Amityville Horror, which was our second episode. Full circle. So Claire, uh, Claire Harrison is played by Lynn Griffin, who we just uh, recently saw her at Horror Hound Columbus doing a panel on holiday horror. And she's really funny. Yes, she's really funny. I think one of the, or her trademark is being able to hold her breath because she's the one that gets the bag over her head. Oops, spoiler alert Um, in the film. Phyllis is played by Andrea Martin. I uh, got a little bit of trivia about her. She was actually in um, SCTV, which was the Canadian version of Saturday Night Live. I mean, that's that's like a very basic description, but if you haven't seen it, that's the best way to kind of understand it. If you've seen SCTV, a lot comes to mind, I'm sure. But Lieutenant Kenneth Fuller is played by John Saxton from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, you got your mention in. Yay. Yeah. Uh, I love John Saxton in this. There's, you know, there's a couple of other uh, great roles in this, but uh, Mrs. Mack is played by Marion Walden, and she her she kind of has a, a really great memorable role as well. Yeah, she's like the, what are they called in sororities? Like the den mother? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was ta- mentioned, just mentioned Andrea Martin, Originally, Saturday Night Live's Gilda Radner was cast as Phyllis, but she had to drop out within a month of filming due to her commitments to SNL. And so Andrew Martin got the role, and she was known as a comedian. She's Canadian, so this is a Canadian production, and uh, was cast in the role. In the remake, she takes the role, similar to Mrs. Mack as sort of the the head of the, of the house. As all great 70s horror movies seem to do, there are alternate titles out there. Just a couple of them include Silent Night, Evil Night, and Stranger in the House. Those are good, but I feel like Black Christmas is a far better title than either of them. I wonder if they could have just gone with Christmas and done like John Carpenter did with Halloween and just they could have done Christmas 2, Christmas 3 and made them all like horror anthologies. Yeah, but then what if they had a really awesome Christmas 3 that was totally original and then everyone was mad because there was no Billy in it and then they just took the whole franchise and they ran it into the ground. Doesn't that story sound familiar? Yeah, it does. Hmm. I wonder what franchise we could be talking about there. Hmm. Halloween. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was a moder- It was. It was actually a fairly low budgeted film. Uh, I think like it looks amazing, but it's a six hundred and twenty thousand dollar budget, and it ended up grossing about four million dollars. It was filmed in Toronto in the winter of seventy three and seventy four, and it didn't have a dis- distribution at the time but was purchased by Warner Brothers and they released it in Canada a couple weeks before Halloween on October the 11th of 1974. And then they waited and they held on to it in the U.S. until right before Christmas. So it came out on December the 20th of that same year. So a week before Christmas, you get Black Christmas. Roy Moore, the the writer, uh, his original script was titled Stop Me. And as we mentioned earlier, rather than being based on a specific true crime, it is based on that urban legend that uh, Chelsea talked about, the babysitter and the man upstairs. I'm curious. I wonder how different that original script is from the final production, because I think in one of the creepy phone calls, doesn't Billy say, like, stop me? Yeah. So I wonder if maybe they just took it and made it Christmassy. Do you think the original one was not about 
Christmas? Oh, no, it was. Um, actually, what they did was uh, he had written the original script, and then once Bob Clark came on, he had Timothy Bond rewrite it, and uh, they put it in a university setting. Wow. So they aged down the characters. Some of the changes, uh, I guess, that really helped bring a lot of attention to it was that it added some reality to the young adults in the film. It had been that title of Stop Me was more of a straight-up slasher film. Yeah. Um, and Bob Clark uh, also, I think his scripts or the films he directs have like a sense of humor throughout. And some of the things that he uh, also changed were that uh, Barbie, Margot Kidder's character, was a lot funnier in the final script. So she she's really awesome. Pushed, yeah, she's she's really great in it. And uh, I think that kind of uh, allows uh, it kind of lightens the mood a lot. Yeah, I love that she's she's funny without seeming like the comedic relief. It just feels like it's true to her character. Yeah, it's a real natural performance. So we talked about Mrs. Mack earlier, and she was inspired by Bob Clark's aunt. And I was wondering, did she also hide booze in the toilet and then inside of like hollowed out old books? Is that where he got that idea? Maybe. <laughs> so just a quote from Bob Clark regarding the age of the characters in the film. And he says, quote, College students, even in 1974, are astute people. They're not fools. It's not all bikinis, beach blankets, and bingo. I love that. I feel like it's uh, to kind of contrast this movie with, you know, the kind of slasher movies you see more of in, I would say, the 80s, where it's a lot of bikinis and beach blankets and bingo. Yeah. All right. I'm going to read out these taglines and get a little feedback. All right. Black Christmas will rock you too. No, not at all. I understand where they're going because I would say one of the more iconic images is the dead person in the rocking chair. But that's only meaningful if you've already seen the movie once. I would go in being like, is it a movie about rock music? That's odd. An odd choice. It's so funny because that makes more sense than what I thought because I thought I was like, is it like black metal? Black metal will rock you too. No, that makes much, much more sense. Yeah. <laughs> that's the rocking chair. All right. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. I like that as a tagline, but it doesn't feel very specific to Black Christmas. That feels like it could be the tagline for literally any horror movie. Yeah, oh, oh definitely. And I, I've seen that a lot on uh, some of the, a lot of the posters tend to go with that quote. All right. Christmas is coming early this year and it's murder. I like that for some reason, but it also makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> right? I think I like it because it makes no sense. Yeah. The sort of Christmas you don't dream of. That one's fine. I'll allow it. A Christmas of another color brings a killer on the loose. I don't really like that one now. Have yourself a scary little black Christmas. It's not at all like the ones you used to know. I do like that. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows if you're awake. He knows. I really like that one. It's beginning to look a lot like bloodshed. Christmas is almost here, and a deranged, axe-wielding psycho is terrorizing a sorority. As it happens, the mad murderer also makes obscene phone calls, and he lives right above the girls. That's way too long. That's like a paragraph. Yeah, the next one's really long, yeah. too. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, a creature was stirring. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, but it was hard to say that St. Nick would be there. A Christmas of another color brings a killer on the loose. That's just three taglines stuck together. Yeah, yeah. I think my favorite is, he knows when you're sleeping, he knows if you're awake, he knows. Yeah, I like that one too. That one's pretty good. Um, or have yourself a scary little Black Christmas. 
yeah, that one's fun. I, I'm cool with the skin crawl onto Taiwan, but yeah, you're right. It needs like a Christmas connection somehow. I don't know how they do it. All right. So let's just jump into our opinions on the movie. Uh, what do you think of Black Christmas, Chelsea? I love it. I, th- I think I loved it even more. This is my second time watching it. We watched it for the first time together last Christmas. And it is so scary. Every shot is so effective. I find it to be far scarier than almost any of the more modern slasher movies that I've seen. You know, you mentioned that Bob Clark changed it to add a little bit of humor. And, you know, I would say the humor that he added, as I mentioned, it it feels very realistic. So you don't really get the relief of like laughing out loud at something. The tension is just building for the entire movie. And I also think they do a really good job of making all like it's it takes place in a sorority house. And I think it would have been very easy to fall into like pillow fights, topless pillow fights, wee, and just having all the girls be like very ditzy. And they do not do that in this movie. I feel like every single character, you know, you kind of get to know over the course of the movie and you kind of grow attached to and then they die. <laughs> um, so that that really, I think, adds to the effect of the movie. Also, the movie has a lot of uh, film shots from the killer's point of view, which is always scary, right? Because it's one of those, you know, you see something that, you know, the character doesn't see. Cause it's like you see the back of their head from the stairs. But I mean, the, the scariest thing in this movie is the phone calls. Oh, yeah. I would say, hands down, so the, the urban legend of the babysitter and the killer upstairs. You know, the big plot point is you're getting these phone calls and then at the end you find out the phone calls are coming from inside the house. And that's at its core the structure of this movie as well. And the first time you get this phone call, it's kind of feels just like a regular obscene phone caller where all the talk is you know very sexual covering all the the c-word bases in the phone call and then the subsequent phone calls they're just like terrifying nonsense and you know one thing i looked into when i was looking at the the true stories was serial killers who have made creepy phone calls so looking at the weepy voice killer, which I made David listen to the 911 calls and you know, the original Night Stalker slash East Area rapist slash Golden State killer um, who just has some terrifying phone calls. But both of those took place after this movie came out. So I knew they couldn't have potentially even been an inspiration. So you'll have to go listen to those YouTube videos on your own and then have nightmares. Or you could listen to the insane case file multi-part episode about original night stalker and then have nightmares (laughs) but but yeah no i i love this movie it's it's definitely my favorite i would say like truly scary christmas movie so what did you think david yeah well i just had a question so do you feel it has that similar well i guess like when we talked about halloween about the the holiday being sort of tangential and creating the atmosphere of it does it does it impact the film for you I actually I feel pretty similarly with this movie as I do about Halloween. It's I think that they're able to take certain elements of the holiday and have it kind of add to the atmosphere. Um, you mentioned as we were watching it, the like haze around the Christmas lights. Um, you know, when they do the far shots of the house, there's like a tree with lights in the front and a wreath on the door. The use of like classic Christmas carols in it. I, I do find a couple of those quite creepy, especially when they're sung by a bunch of children. Um, I think that they use that element very well. But 
know, we just watched Silent Night, Deadly Night last, no, two nights ago. And you don't have things in this movie like someone getting strangled with Christmas lights. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's not, you know, super Christmassy. The Christmas feels more just like the setting than a character in the movie. But it's just so good that it, I think it still is a, a top movie for me. Yeah, this movie feels like it could actually happen. Um, unlike Halloween, which feels a little bit of a heightened reality to it. And I mean, I absolutely love Halloween. It really set the template for slasher films that I think we still see that template today. So I really like the originality of it. I think like knowing it was made in 74 and came out back then that it doesn't, I guess like, you know how some movies feel a little diluted by the movies that have come after because we've seen so many other versions of a similar sort of story. But this one, I just like, I love the performances of all the, the women in the sorority house. And I think that the phone calls, like you said, are really a highlight of the movie. There's just nothing quite like it in any other film um, in any other horror movie and I have never gotten like an obscene phone call so I don't really know, <laughs> know what that would be like to get the really creepy ones that happened in this movie where that starts out sort of like a, a dirty kind of obscene message and then it just devolves into animal sounds and random childlike voices and it sounds like multiple people are on the line and it's just really 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 bizarre but uh, it's interesting I wonder how I mean I, I like that the same filmmaker made this and also made a Christmas story. Yeah, it's it's quite amusing. Um, so yeah, I would recommend anybody if you are a fan of holiday films or slashers or horror movies or any sort of even like crime films that Black Christmas, I highly recommend it. I would recommend it to anybody too. You know, it, it does kind of touch on my sensitivity to home invasion movies. You know, it definitely, I think, heightens how scary I found the movie to be, but it's just so good. And it doesn't have a lot of, I think, the the home invasion tropes that you see in movies nowadays. It feels very kind of unique. And I think it, it also, <laughs> somehow it kind of helps with the fear that, you know, it seems to me that the killer in this has just kind of broken from reality. You know, this is not like someone planning and breaking into this house and like being meticulous. It's just like a crazed killer that happens to be living in the attic. And that's pretty scary. I mean, as as we talked in the earlier case about, you know, someone fitting through a little opening and living in the attic, like that's that's terrifying. Um, yep. So this film, we talk about the point of view of the killer and the movie kicks off where there's like a sorority house. There's like a holiday event. It's a full house and we see the first person perspective of an individual climbing like the wall and into the the house. Yes, yes. Climbing up. There's like a little ladder going into this kind of square hole in the attic. And the characters comment often, I guess they leave their front door unlocked pretty often. Um, and I think even during that scene, someone comments, who left the door open? It's like, maybe it's the crazed killer in your attic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the women are having like a just a Christmas party and um, the phone rings and just picks it up. And it seems like they've gotten calls in the past from the same person. Um, yes, yes. They call him the moaner. Yeah. So just kind of like holds up the phone and they do an interesting thing in the phone where you can everyone can hear what's the caller or the caller's voice. So it starts out just a really dirty phone call. It's not it, like the set that at first, it just seems like someone making an obscene phone call. But then after, um, I think, is, is it Barb kind of provokes him? Yes. And then he ends the call with like, um, I, 
I'll kill you. Yes, and it's creepy because you know, his voice in the lead up, you know, is like breathy and feels like there's like emotion behind it, you know, talking about doing sexual things to these women. And then when it goes to I'm going to kill you, it's just like this like quiet, monotone, completely flat, just I'm going to kill you and then hangs up the phone. And I think Wes Craven does that in in Scream to an extent. Um, yeah. Possibly inspired by this because uh, those those conversations with when Ghostface calls, they're like conversational. And then all of a sudden he, he'll, he will just flat out have this really ominous line about like killing whoever it is. That's true. I'm I bet he was inspired by this. Yeah, definitely. And it's also like the rotary phone back in the day. I mean, I feel like this movie worked so so well with the phone technology of the time. And we get to see that later on uh, in the movie. But um, okay, so basically they, they hang up and Claire gets kind of upset because her and Barb are arguing over whether the call is serious or not. She kind of gets flustered. And because she is going to be um, going on a, a trip, she's going to meet her dad the next day. She goes upstairs to pack. While she's packing, she hears a noise in the closet. And you oh, kinda... there's a really creepy scene where like she's taking her clothes out of the closet and you see her like... A shot of her facing the closet, grabbing the clothes and walked away. And then the camera lingers on the closet and you see like the killer's features kind of appearing behind this plastic sheet that's hanging in the closet. Great shot. Very scary. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I guess- love like that kind of scare. It's not a jump scare. It's like, you know, that something is there and then you see it. It's just, yeah, A plus. Yeah, no, it's good. And I guess he just basically like moves forward over her with the plastic bag and then that that's what he suffocates her with. And yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very disturbing scene. And then she's kind of like pulled up into the attic and placed in a rocking chair. And she just has that plastic bag over her head. And throughout the movie, they kind of cut back and forth to the scene of Port Claire because she's what sets the whole like film in motion. Is Yeah. And that's the actress was talking about filming all of those, which when we're talking about how she was bragging about being able to hold her breath for a long time. Yeah. I can't imagine. Oh my gosh, I'd be freaking out. Because it's like over her face and like sucked into her mouth. It's not like she could be like breathing a little bit in there. She has to actually be holding her breath for all of the shots. And there are long shots of her in that chair. Oh yeah, I was like counting down and I don't know how many seconds I came to, but it was an uncomfortable amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so because she's gone upstairs and she was kind of mad, I think everyone uh, in the house kind of assumes that she went to bed or whatever. But it turns out the next day that Claire's father is waiting to meet her and she doesn't show up. That's when you kind of get the sense that something is wrong. He goes, I guess he goes back to the sorority house and he asks around, right? Is that how that? Yes. He's also kind of judging the sorority house because there's like posters of naked people and clearly people that have been drinking. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite scenes because there's the um, the John Lennon, Yoko Ono, um, the peace poster. And <laughs> Mrs. Max kind of holding her hands over over the butts <laughs> on that one and trying to like play it sly and slick and um she's like oh i got to get i got to go into my room and and check something out and then <laughs> he ends up seeing it and of course he's just kind of getting more and more agitated okay so we're kind of cutting from a couple of the the different women in the house and there's a couple of jump cuts but as we mentioned earlier with <laughs> a laugh was the character of peter and jess is meeting with him and it turns out that he is a pianist he's in the music program of the school the conservatory i guess right yes that, is it is there i thought there's a moment this is a phone call part right no i believe she tells him in person it's oh, before right. he's supposed to have a big recital. So, oh yeah, 
oh, uh, uh, so Jess is like, oh, the, I have some news to tell you. We need to talk. Yeah. And he's about to have this piano recital. And it's obvious that he is a very fragile man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. And she says that she's pregnant and that she wants to have an abortion. And he just kind of freaks out about it. He does. He absolutely freaks out. Yeah. And he does the um, the very aggressive thing where he's like, basically, you're going to have the baby yeah. um, and he threatens her. Essentially threatens her. Yes. Yeah. We'll get into this more a little bit later, but he is kind of set up from the beginning as a threat to Jess. But, you know, is he the only threat to Jess is the question. Yes, exactly. While this is happening, Mr. Harrison and Barb and Phyllis, they go to the police to report Claire's disappearance. And, you know, they're kind of frantic because no one knows where she is. She was supposed to be at a certain spot. She was supposed to meet her father and she isn't. And I think like, you know, then typical fashion in a movie or tv where it's like the police are like very hesitant to really take action yet because it hasn't been that long like they're like we it, it hasn't been enough it time hasn't even passed. been a day she's college aged and they say you know she's probably just at a cabin with her boyfriend um but of course she's not because we her boyfriend is a character in the movie that we yeah. see but oh man, Barb has just a great moment in in this when she's at the police station and she's they're like, oh, how can we contact you? And she's like, you contact me at the new phone extension, Felatio, whatever the the number of the house is. Yes. And yes. he's like, oh, he doesn't he doesn't have the, a clue. The cop does not know the word Felatio. And so she spells it out. He writes it down, and then <laughs> she just kind of laughs to herself. And and uh, yeah, it was a pretty good a pretty good joke on this. Yeah. Oh, police officer yeah and then later they have all of the other cops laughing at how stupid that one police officer is yeah so that happens and they're still kind of dismissed in terms of like claire being gone but then there's kind of a, a the cop talk with lieutenant fuller and they discuss that mrs um Quife has reported that her daughter is missing and she's uh like kid so janice janice is missing so that kind of escalates in a search party for janice but also claire um i guess i guess it really you know the the a missing child i think is, janice is the priority yes yeah um, right. because she is a, a young child i don't know if they say her exact age but it's implied i guess she was just walking home from school and disappeared and the, the search party is looking in the field that she cuts through to go home and they do find her body. They do. Sadly, they find poor Janice. Yes. But in the meantime, there's another murder. There is. I feel like they've really set up Mrs. Mack as to be a really likable character, but because she's basically alone at the house. Well, she hears the cat. So she she's does. not alone. There's a cat. And uh, yes. as far as we know, the cat survives, but the cat may be an accomplice of the killer because apparently the cat's hanging out up in the attic. That's true. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I would not put it past cats. I They're know. They're sneaky. Yeah, sometimes I'll clip Mosley like, would you do that to me? Oh, you know he would. Um, Yeah. So Mrs. Mack is murdered and she's murdered. So she goes, she hears the sounds and she goes, uh, she goes and she goes to look in the attic. Yeah. She goes, the cat's in the attic meowing. Yeah. And like you said, with the, um, the killer kind of standing behind the plastic bag earlier when he murders Claire, he's standing behind this like hook, this hook on a rope. Yeah. You see just like him holding this hook on a rope. So you know what's coming for poor Mrs. Mack. Yeah. And, and I'm imagining. Pops her little head up. Yeah. And that pops off. 
not technically. No, she's, it doesn't. It just she's literally hanging there for the entire movie, though. Yeah, she is. I imagine like the hook is just kind of to help hoist stuff into the attic, I guess, through the drop floor or the. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I never thought about why that hook is there. I figured it was just to murder people. Yeah. No, I. I kind of what i thought i don't know i don't know does anyone have an attic that has like a hook that dangles down from the thing because maybe move out of your house if you do yeah or yeah at least uh look look both ways when you insert your head into the attic door Mm -hmm. all right so she is murdered and then um well the um so it's really sad because they do find the body and there's like the reactions to that yeah the body of the the girl yes the body of the girl sorry mrs mac is not discovered no so there's another call uh another call and this is what initiates the police to uh hook up the tracing of the call yes and this is this the first call that's where he's talking about billy and agnes yeah i believe so yes so the calls get very weird very fast you want to read some of the transcripts some of the calls basically all of the ones after that first obscene one follow this pattern of like it sounds like multiple voices talking over each other and there are kind of two characters that are brought up a lot which is billy and agnes yeah so i i I kind of always refer to the killer as billy Um, everyone does right yeah Yeah. i'm not gonna even try to do the creepy voice but just like the the lines are like agnes i'm billy don't tell what we did and then there's like a he's like singing really creepily and it's little baby bunting daddy with the hunting gonna fetch a rabbit skin to wrap his baby agnes in it's really really creepy if i could find the phone call on youtube i will splice it into the episode so you guys can all enjoy it hello 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 oh hell not again billy billy i'm sorry you have the wrong number what your mother and i must know is where did you put the baby you've got the wrong number where did you put agnes billy Look, I'm telling you, you have the wrong number. What your mother and I must know is... So, Jess is startled by Peter because he sneaks into the house to talk about this, about her being pregnant. Yes, and there is a short scene before this where you see him just completely botch the big recital that he had been preparing for I guess because he was thinking about this and then after that he takes like the music stand and smashes the grand piano which I'm assuming it's not even his grand piano it probably belongs to the school uh, which is just a very rude thing to do. Yeah I, I totally think it's part of the school property and like they did a really good job of making his like whatever song he was playing sound really bad bad but also like creepy and ominous yeah and he's sweating the whole time and and you're flashing back between the panel of i guess his professors who are watching him play and judging him and and then that but yeah so he's he sneaks into the house which is very suspicious argues with jess and then she like is able to kick him out of the house yeah and right as he's kind of leaving upset and flustered that's when Lieutenant uh, Fuller arrives, and this is when they he brings in the the technicians to uh, record the telephone calls. Yes, so they're tapping the phones in order to trace the phone calls. And, and yeah, yeah, and he does. He notices Peter, so he actually after this becomes a little suspicious. You know, upset boyfriend is like suspect number one. Yeah, and this is when you kind of get to see, um, I guess, the way phone technology worked in 1974, which I I don't have that same experience. There are like rows and rows and rows of, I guess, all these connecting switches. 
because it's all mechanical, you can physically like walk to a row of wherever a connection is made and identify that yeah. that call is coming in. And at it looks like spot. um during the scene when he's like trying to trace a phone call, he like has a like a telephone in his hand and he's plugging it into I guess these different connections to see I guess it's a correct one when he hears the obscene phone call coming out and then he knows that it's coming from this specific port and can trace that to a location. But before we get to any of that. Yeah. But well, they show a little bit of that, how they're kind of just setting it up. Yeah. Um, And then he also leaves a cop outside of the building. So there's actually a car parked out front where an officer is waiting, you know, in case of anything. Yeah, one of the things that the uh, the film does really well is masking the sounds of the any murder that may happen. And in this particular yeah. instance, so Barb has, I guess she's kind of been day drinking or whatever. So she is not feeling really great. So she goes to lay down. Yes. And at one point, we kind of see the killer from the killer's perspective going into Barb's room. And then she wakes up actually having an asthma attack, which... Jess does hear and goes in and helps her and she says that you know she had a nightmare about someone being in the room which I'm assuming at that point he actually is in the room and is hiding I don't think that was her nightmare that we saw right that he um, she actually saw someone but thought it was a dream yeah yeah and then yes and then the carolers come to the house this is a really creepy creepy scene the kind of the camera stops on this like crystal glass unicorn I mean with an extraordinarily sharp pointy unicorn horn yep um and so it's like i mean you know what what is going to happen next and so yes you do yes so um the killer stabs her with it yes yes r.i.p barb yes and she makes it pretty far through the movie i mean more than two two thirds of the way through but yeah. I, I really like her character so much it's like i know her, it was her, sad yeah, her death is, is awfully sad but um so we get another phone call though it's like we've seen them uh tap the phone and so this is a great opportunity to see how the tracing process works so they tell uh, Jess to stay on the line as long as she can. But I think that the way this is played, you can tell she's like so disturbed and kind of distracted by what the caller is saying. Yeah. That, I mean, for me, I always, every time I watch it, I feel like she's going to hang up early. But she didn't hang up. He hung up on he her. He does hang yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm like, I feel that like threat of like, now that I know there's like a clock ticking yeah. for her to hold on to it. And she looks so bothered by it. Yeah. Like, you know, but she doesn't. Yes. She holds on as long as she can, but not quite long enough. Yeah. I mean, she holds on, but the caller is like, is just right at like a couple of seconds before. And then he hangs up. Yeah. And this phone call is kind of unique because he quotes back part of the argument she was having with her boyfriend before he storms out. So this is where you start thinking that it is the boyfriend. Right. Because, I mean, the it, it's interesting because John Saxon's character, like, Here's this. And he's like kind of making connections, right? Well, so he's did, seen. Did the boyfriend call her right after the obscene phone call and then Saxon listened in on that? I th- yeah. I think yeah, that's... there is a scene where they yeah. have that happen. And, and it's like. And then he's immediately like, oh, it's got to be the boyfriend. So yeah. He actually goes to the conservatory after that to right. try to find him. And then he finds this destroyed piano and is <laughs> yeah. like, what is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's like just following uh john saxon around as he's like piecing together that uh it could be peter is like i love that part of the movie yeah but meanwhile actually uh jess is talking to phil about the possibility of it being peter because of that that snippet in the phone call and she comes to the conclusion that it can't be because i guess earlier on in the movie it was like right after she got an obscene phone call he came into the house so he wouldn't have 
had time to be somewhere where he could have made the call. Yeah. But I think as we see later, it's not really enough to even convince herself. Yeah, totally. She's she is still suspicious. Yeah, she is. So this is when Phil goes. She's alone because she goes back upstairs to check on Bar- yeah. Barb. Well, before that, someone pops up in the back like window and scares them, and it turns out that it's a search party that's out. This is kind of like one of the funnier scenes. Um, they're out, you know, looking for the killer of Janice, the the young girl, and then you know they decide, oh, maybe now's a good time to start locking all of the doors and windows. And I love the scene with Jess and Phyllis because it really shows that, I mean, they seem to be, they seem to be friends. They live in the yeah. same house and they're in the same sorority, but they're also friends. They're, it's pretty, it's like a, a nice, really tense and then light, light moment. Yeah. Yeah. But then of course, he's, you know, Phyllis is like, oh, I'm going to go check on Barb and we know that Barb is dead. So we know that probably Phyllis this will also end. be dead yep. soon. Yes. This is the end. And then she's like pulled into the room and murdered as well. Yeah. Another call? Another call, yes. And this call is a longer call. So this call is actually enough for them to trace the phone call. And as as it is in the urban legend, so it is in the movie, the call is coming from inside the house. Yes. And if you saw our Instagram, I think we uh, we did a uh, Instagram moment of that. So yeah. story, I mean, sorry. So um, Lieutenant Fuller actually is still out at the conservatory when he gets the call about the trace being successful. You know, he he goes to the car and he finds out like they give him the address of where the call is coming from. And he says, that's where the call is going to. That's not where the call is originating from. That's where the call is going to because that's the address of the sorority house. And he's like, well, it's where it's coming from also. So he immediately goes to call the police officer that's stationed outside the house. And of course, there's no answer because he is dead. R.I.P. Yes, he is dead. Um, So he tells Sergeant Nash to call Jess and just very calmly tell her that she needs to immediately leave the house. Just drop everything and leave the house, but be calm about it. Don't tell her, you know, why. Just get her out of the house. Yeah, he's like, don't mess up. And he says, you know, that he's going to be there in, I don't know if it was like five or ten minutes because he drove there immediately so the phone rings i mean every time the phone rings inside the sorority house like it's really tense but it ends up you know it's it's sergeant nash and just answers it and he i feel like he does a good job but he does a good job initially but she says okay i'll leave the house i just need to go upstairs and get phil and barb and then he shouts at her don't don't do that and then finally admits that the calls are coming from inside the house. But because Jess is a good person, a better person than me, I would say she does not want to leave her friends behind. <laughs> bye bye, friend. Oh, yeah. yep. <laughs> bye, David. Sorry. Oh, oh no. I wouldn't leave you. I'll grab you under one arm and Eames and Mosley and Gertrude and Willow and Hildegard under the other arm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, I that. That's a really great scene because, I mean, it's so tense and ever. I feel like at that point, we're all yelling at Jess to, like, don't go upstairs. And this this is probably actually the the scariest scene in the movie because she goes and opens the door. She sees Barb and Phil dead on the bed, like, posed very weirdly. And then, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm, like, getting goosebumps just thinking about this scene. But, like, in the crack between the door and the the wall like when the doors open you just see billy's eye and I, he says something like agnes it's me billy and you just like want to actually scream <laughs> and just it's oh my god yeah Ooh, that scene um but that's 
I mean, spoiler alert, that's really all you see of him besides the scene where he's like standing over Barb about to to stab her. Really, all you see of this character is one of his eyes. Yeah, yeah, you see one movie. of his eyes. You in see that, one of his yeah. eyes, everything else is in shadow, and then you see the one eye behind the door, right? That's that's fair. Yeah, right? I think, yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's accurate. So then it's like a big chase scene kind of like through it's the house. It's a chase but you don't see him. You don't see him at all. And then but you she, know he's there. Yeah, you know he's there, and she makes her, her way down to the cellar and barricades the door. Unfortunately, there's a yeah. bolt on the door that she locks, but then you could see the him pounding and pounding pounding on the door from her yeah. perspective. Oh, and they do that thing where it's like pounding, 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 and then suddenly stops, and it's just silence well it's silence and so she like goes down to yeah. uh deeper into the cellar yeah. to the basement and, and she's then... armed with a poker that she had grabbed before she goes upstairs she grabbed like the poker from the fireplace yeah so she, at least she's been armed the entire time yeah but then um so all of a sudden there's like a shadow at the small little cube window to the basement mm-hmm. well it turns out to be stupid peter yes it is it is peter so and he... peter's like what are you doing i mean he's so clueless he's like what are you doing down there? What are you doing down there? And then no, he like, doesn't even see. Well, before he even sees that she's down there, he breaks in. He breaks the window to the door and lets himself into the basement, you know, and is like calling her name. So he like he must know that he's down there. But then he finally sees her and he's like, what are you doing? And then like approaches her and then end scene. <laughs> yeah, end scene. And then they like. Uh, and it's the cops arriving. They're there. And then, yeah, Jess is like kind of passed out with Peter slumped over her and he's dead. bloody and dead. He's yep. bloody dead. <laughs> yes, he is. And then I guess she has been knocked unconscious or, you know, I feel like a lot of that is left up to the imagination. It's not as specific as to what happened to cause them to kind of get in that like pose. Yes. But they, they take her upstairs in the house and they lay her in the bed. There's a doctor there that says, you know, that she's going to be unconscious for like four more hours or something. They've found the bodies of the two girls and they're, you know, moving them out of out of the building. And the police think, well, it was Peter. He killed them. And then she killed him in self-defense. So they end up um, leaving. So actually it was Claire's father uh, kind of faints and the police who were in the room with her end up leaving the room and helping the father downstairs. And then they you know, someone comes and turns off the light in her room and it's that's the end right nothing nothing yeah, else happens oh wait well yeah it's like a series of coincidences leading to her being left alone yeah i mean it feels i mean you can kind of you can feel like it happening yeah. like one by one it's like one by one players that passes yep. out the guard or what the police officer who is supposed to be on guard is and the uh, is trying to like help him out and then they yep. take him down and he's taken away by the ambulance or whatever and then yeah so she's like all alone all alone and the camera slowly starts panning out of the room and down the hallway and the whole time you are expecting something to pop out but it approaches the the ladder that leads up to the little attic and you you hear billy billy's voice and it goes upstairs and you see you know it kind of lingers on claire in the rocking chair and then zooms out the window so i don't know you know, what the internet thinks. I feel like there are different ways to interpret it. But to me, you know, Peter wasn't Billy and Billy is up there still. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Gotta be it. Yeah. Right. Yep. And we can only, I, we were talking about this, you know, after we watched the movie and it's like, you could, I guess you could kind of like write your own story as to like the next scene that happens afterwards. I like to think that Jess makes it out, but like, it could be like, we talked about maybe Billy just forever lives in that attic and 
And that's the thing is, you know, maybe it kind of depends on how much his character has really broken with reality. Is he smart enough to not go down in that moment and kill Jess while she's unprotected in order to let everyone believe that Peter was the killer and then he can continue to live free? Or, you know, is is he kind of too far gone and he just is going to go down and kill her. So I feel like it, it could really go either way. They really leave it up to the viewer, but it's it's an excellent ending. It's an ending befitting of the rest of this excellent movie. Yes, yes. Love the movie. So that's uh, that's Black Christmas. I hope you enjoyed the ride. And uh, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Yeah, or just, or you, just don't, you don't even need to wait until next Christmas to watch it. You can watch it whenever you want. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like anytime, I think like anytime there's snow on the ground, I like to watch movies that, you know, are like snowy and wintry, like, you know, anytime. Well, I think we the... tend to leave our Christmas tree up through February, so lots of time to make it through the rest of those Hallmark movies. Yeah, I'm waiting for a good snow so we can watch the uh, Arrow video, uh, the thing. Oh, yes. Get that. snowed in and watch that. And then we can guess which one of us is a thing. Well, we could always test it. Because... How do you feel about blood? Ooh. Do we have a pro? We do have our propane torch. Yes, we do. All right. Or it's a butane torch, actually. All right. Well, thanks for sticking with us through our chat about Black Christmas. Um, and thank you for joining us on this special Christmas episode. We're actually going to be skipping next week. There won't be a mini-sode, but two weeks from now, there will be another full episode. So you're only missing out on a mini, mini bit. <laughs> All right. Chelsea, what's your now playing? My now playing for this week is another podcast. Ooh, excellent. What is it? So this podcast is called Getting Off, and it's not a podcast about sexy things. I know what you're thinking, David, Um, but it's an excellent true crime podcast that's actually hosted by two criminal defense attorneys, Jessa and Nick, like actual attorneys. Oh, cool. Uh, It's essentially like Law & Order SVU, but they're actual real lawyers, and they're also way smarter and funnier. Um, they work in the same law firm, which Jessa started, but Nick also has previous experience on a, the prosecuting side. So it's really cool because for the episodes, like uh, they did one about the Brock Turner case. So they could actually split it up. Uh, actually Jessa talked about the defense side and then Nick talked about the prosecuting side of the case. And, you know, they're really bringing a lot of this personal experience to the podcast to just make it really special. I personally, I know with my true crime podcast, I'm very quick to be like, this person did it <laughs> to the gallows with them. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really interesting to hear, you know, what from a defense perspective on these. Um, and I think this is a very uncommon thing to find in true crime podcasts, which is why I find it so refreshing. When they pick their cases, they tend to pick obviously more complex ones. So there's a lot more you know, that they could really bring to it that's new. So they've done, as I mentioned, the Brock Turner. They also looked at um, Aaron Hernandez, the football player. So kind of the role of like CTE in evaluating responsibilities for these crimes. They talked about uh, actually recently Jose Garcia Zarat. Uh, that's the case the of Kate Steinle just in California where he was just, uh, it's, it's a very politicized case currently, but it's an interesting one. And all these episodes have, multiple parts where they go very in depth. So I would encourage anyone out there if you're looking for a true crime podcast to uh, make you smarter and teach you court words that you could use to impress your friends. Uh, Definitely check them out. They're on all the streaming platforms and they're also on social media. Their handle is getting off pod. Oh, very cool. So what's your now playing, David? Wait, I know what it is. 
Uh, my now plane is a project that probably needs some extra promotion. So a podcast like ours may help put some more bus in seats because I know this movie is in danger of not making any money because uh, it's a film and it's called <laughs> Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. I've never heard of it. Tell me more. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Chelsea, it's a sequel to 2015's The Force Awakens. How? I don't think I, I caught that one four times in theaters, including... Um... <laughs> Wait, how did we see it in the Science Center? 3D, 2D, Omnimax. Omnimax, yes. I did not see that movie in Omnimax. Oh, wait, yes, I did. We saw it in a fourth dimensional smell-o-vision format, I believe. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, so The Last Jedi, Ryan Johnson's um, entry into the Star Wars saga. And I could not more highly recommend it. It is outstanding. I can't really talk about the movie, though because anything talking about it will give away plot points and big surprises. So if you've not seen it and you're on the fence, uh, believe me, coming from a lifelong Star Wars fan, The Last Jedi is incredible, and I would not miss the opportunity to see it in the theaters on the big screen with a crowd if you can. All right, what do you got for coming soon? I haven't thought about this very much. Well, let's, let's see. This episode is hopefully coming out right before Christmas. So On Christmas or, or whatever. Christmas yeah, Eve. Christmas Eve. Yeah. So if you are listening to this as soon as it comes out, I am probably watching Muppet Christmas Carol right now, right this minute. As I'm saying these words to you through your headphones or speakers or car stereo, I am watching Muppet Christmas Carol because it is my favorite Christmas movie. I love it so much. I've been holding off on watching it because we do like to watch it usually on Christmas Eve uh, going along with the song. After all, there's only one more sleep till Christmas. (laughs) So, So yeah, why not? That that's my coming soon. What about you, David? When a cold wind blows, it <laughs> chills you, chills, chills you, you to, to the, the bone. bone. But there's nothing in nature. That, okay, I know we tried this before, and you made me cut it. So whatever. Yeah, if people don't like my laugh. They're really not gonna like my singing voice. <laughs> oh, coming soon. Yes. yes. Uh, that would be Stephen King's collection of short stories called Just After Sunset. There's like over half a dozen. I think there's ten or or so of them. And um, this is a little bit of a cheat for coming soon because I'm already into the second or third story so far. But um, well, you're yeah. coming soon is the next story. Yes, exactly. And I love it. I was in the mood for some Stephen King short stories and I just finished his son, Joe Hill's The Fireman. While that was an extra long book and it took me quite a while to get through it, uh, it paid off pretty well. So I really enjoyed it. But um, I needed something that was just a little more uh, quickly paced. So, yeah. Well, that's all I have for my coming soon. I guess Santa has has hopefully arrived. Yes. uh, Or if you don't celebrate Christmas, happy holidays, happy winter, happy day off of work. Everyone can celebrate that. Yeah, um, absolutely. And happy life yeah, day. I if hope you're that. A Star Wars fan. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that, you know, if it's your thing, you get to spend lots of extra time with your family. That's what I personally am most excited about. I'm going to go see my absolutely perfect baby niece and, yeah, spend some time in my home state of New Jersey for Christmas and then New Year, David's home state of Illinois. And we'll be back with you. What day is that? The 8th? January 8th. We'll be back soon. Yeah. Yep. Uh, cool. All right. So um, just uh, wanted to, of course, mention our social media in case uh, you don't like to read or click on things. You can just remember this in this episode. We have an Instagram. It's at Based on a True Crime. We have a Twitter. It's at True Crime Based. We have a website. 
basedonatruecrime.com, where uh, you can stream our podcast. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, all those good things through your various podcatchers. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Based on a True Crime Podcast. We have a new discussion group on um, Facebook that is Cult of Based on a True Crime. That's been a lot of fun. You're going to get a little bit of uh, different stuff than what we post typically on the other social media things. And you get to chat and interact a bit more. Um, I think it's a little more conducive to those sorts of uh, weird and wild and fun conversations. Yes, and we have lots of very awesome, active participants in the group that we're we're so happy with it's already surpassed my wildest imaginations for it so thank you so much to, to all of our members and you know hopefully curious about it come join us come join our cult yes do and uh if you want free stickers uh look around on our website and you can find uh, out the way to do that also um if you want to find me and my artwork look at at lab creature on instagram or every other social media just look me up there our podcast theme and supporting music was composed and performed by nico yes we talk of dreams yes thank you nico he can be found on twitter at we talk of dreams and the website we talk of dreams.com instagram at we talk of dreams did you already tell everyone to rate review and subscribe no but uh, rate review and subscribe we're actually three ratings away from 70. Yes. So if you want to give us a Christmas present, if you like what you've been hearing, if you're excited that we put out an episode on Christmas, give us a rating or a review. We would really appreciate it. It really does help our visibility in the iTunes charts. It does. And if you've made it through all the way through the episode, you probably get to hear us say this episode and episode over again. But hey, we got to give a, give ourselves a little bit of shout out there. So yeah. thank you for all of you who have taken the time to do that. If you have not, I know it can be a little challenging, but you know, it helps us out and uh, gets us out there for, for more people. So yeah, as we uh, round out this episode and as the snow falls, or if you're in an area that does not have snow and you're a little warm and you know, the, the sun starts to go down, just remember death is but a door and time is but a window we'll be back ho 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 ho